We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And away we go, episode 11 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Friday, March 5th, 2021. It is a day on which I will attempt to send you into the weekend flying. Consider today's show a springboard into the weekend. Just like the Wizards beat the Clippers on Thursday night and have been springboarded into the All-Star break with another victory. we got to talk about that today. But you're going to listen to this podcast and you're going to be catapulted into the skies. That's my goal. Uh, with today's show. And on today's show is a special guest, J.P. Finley, Washington football team insider for NBC Sports Washington. And we are going to do a deep dive, a deep, deep dive into many things going on with our Washington football team. We're going to get into what to expect from Washington in free agency, which is coming up in less than two weeks. We're going to get into the quarterback situation, the options in free agency, the options via trade, the options in the draft, what Ron Rivera truly is thinking about Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. And we're going to get into the Brandon Sheriff situation. I said Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Scherf. Yes. Thank you, Roger Goodell. Brandon Scherf. Uh, Tuesday, in case you don't know, Tuesday is deadline day. The deadline by which NFL teams can tag players is Washington about to franchise tag Scherf for a second consecutive season. Look, I don't want him playing for Washington in 2021 under the terms of a second straight franchise tag. 
I want a long-term deal or I want a tag and trade scenario. But it may well be that Washington ends up franchise tagging Sheriff for a second straight year and he ends up playing for Washington under the terms of a franchise tag for a second straight year. We shall see. Late on Thursday night, while many of you were sleeping, while some of you were engaged in deviant acts, the latest mock draft from ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay came out. Want to talk about that in just a few moments. There was something relevant to the Washington football team regarding the Pittsburgh Steelers Ben Roethlisberger news on Thursday. Him getting that restructured contract. We'll get into that on today's show. And I will be talking Nationals on this Friday pod. Uh, their last two first round picks, two starting pitchers on display in Thursday's exhibition game. This podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, still top 15 in the country on Apple Podcasts in terms of football podcast, number 14 as of me checking just a few minutes ago before I started recording here very early on this Friday morning. But yeah, number 14 in the country among football podcasts. We're sandwiched between Chris Collinsworth's podcast and Adam Schefter's podcast. But we're ahead of Schefter. We're ahead of Shefty Schefter. So I take that as a win. But thank you again for all the support. Thank you for subscribing and rating and reviewing. Thank you for spreading the word. There are many good things happening with this podcast behind the scenes right now. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to jinx anything. I don't want to get ahead of things. Gotta stay medium, as Jim Zorn used to say. But just know that your support has meant a lot and is doing a lot. So thank you. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. And believe it or not, I continue to get a ton of feedback, (laughs) good and bad, about the opening song for this podcast. This really has been incredible. Maybe the two most popular topics that I've gotten feedback on are whether I should curse on this podcast and the opening song. Like, those two issues have resonated with you guys. It's really cracked me up. But here's just a recent sample of stuff I've gotten regarding the song. Tweet from Rhino on Thursday. Okay, the opening music officially has grown on me. I vote to keep it. (laughs) Email from David. I know that people complain about the opening music. It is starting to grow on me. Email from Francesco. The intro song needs a little time to be the acquired taste, which we will eventually crave. I concur with my fellow Galdi beholder, Mr. Joe. I like the song and believe it should stay. Now, I also got this email from Mike. Found you yesterday, Galdi. I am so glad to hear you again. Very much enjoy the podcast. Please keep up the great work. I will be listening. But the new song stinks. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Email from Kendall. Oh, good job on the show. I can say that I'm not a fan of the opening intro. I don't know if that will ever grow on me. LOL. I saw people suggesting Wale to help you. I know that someone knows someone to get you at least a go-go intro. You've paid homage for years, so why wouldn't someone hook you up? My personal opinion is that you do some beatboxing before each show. Give us some Fat Boys or some Biz Marquee type stuff. Biz is local. Put it out there to see if he'd help out. Hey, at least Kendall's coming up with a potential solution, right? He's not just complaining. He's trying to fix what he sees as the problem. But yeah, man, the song is a hot button issue. And maybe that's like the perfect thing. Like maybe I should just never change the song and just let it continue to be 
a hot button issue, you know, because like I said, it's generating a lot of conversation here, which is kind of a good thing. I mean, one of the shames of the podcast world, of course, is that you can't take phone calls, which I used to do on the radio all the time, but you can certainly take emails and tweets and I'm getting a lot of those. So, and I tell you what, this trend, and I'm seeing it more and more, I just gave you some of it, of people saying, you know, at first I couldn't stand that song. And now it's kind of starting to grow on me. I'm, you know, maybe that continues to happen here. Maybe, I mean, this is only the end of week two of this podcast. Maybe by like the end of week four, or week five, we got more converts with the song. We shall see. All right, enough of the nonsense. Enough of the fooling around. We're a little loopy on this Friday. Let's focus. Let's get serious. We have sports to discuss. All right, so maybe it's just me, although I tend to think not, but I'm intrigued by the mock drafts, okay? I know some people like to mock the mocks, but the mock drafts, especially this year, given what's going on with our team, the Washington football team, and this obvious search for quarterback help, I think these mock drafts matter a lot. This is supposed to be a quarterback-rich draft class. Washington has the number 19 overall pick. Who's going to fall who realistically is going to be available to Washington versus who is going to be Gonzo by the time that number 19 pick ends up coming up. And of course, a wild card with everything is, well, what does Washington think about it? All of these various quarterbacks set to be available. So with that in mind, late on Thursday night, the latest mock draft, mock draft 3.0, in fact, was put out by ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay. And McShay has Washington again taking the Florida receiver Kadarius Toney at number 19. This has become kind of a popular thing. A lot of the mocks are having Washington take Tony at 19. In fact, McShay's previous mock draft, the mock draft 2.0 that came out on February 9th, had Washington taking Kadarius Tony. In fact, the first mock draft by ESPN's other prominent NFL draft analyst, Mel Kuyper Jr., came out on January 26th. That mock had Washington taking Kadarius Tony. Kadarius Tony is a very intriguing player. So, He was listed by Florida as being six feet tall, buck 93. He, in 2020, led the Gators in receptions with 70, receiving yards with 984, scrimmage yards with 1,145. He averaged eight and a half yards over 19 carries, and he was the Gators' primary punt returner and kickoff returner. Very clearly, right? All-purpose weapon, position flex, not necessarily, you know, supremely large, but that doesn't matter in today's day and age. You know, he's like a Tyreek Hill type. He's the kind of guy you could deploy in a lot of different ways. He brings speed. He brings playmaking ability. He would fit in very nicely on the Washington football team. You know, to comp him to another Florida Gator, it's not unlike Percy Harvin. And look, I know Percy Harvin did not have a great NFL career, but Percy Harvin in college was a freak. And Kadarius Tony was Percy Harbin-like in 2020. So that would be a weapon that clearly Washington could benefit from. But you can't not look at the quarterbacks. At least I can't. And so this latest McShay mock, take a listen to this, all right? And he does include trades now uh, in his mocks. Uh, Kuyper's doing the same thing, too. I guess this was an edict from ESPN. You got to start incorporating trades into your mocks. But anyway, McShay has four quarterbacks going in the top four in the mock. McShay has five quarterbacks going in the top nine in the mock, okay? He's got a bunch of offensive picks, 14 of the first 20 picks in the McShay mock that came out on Thursday night, offensive players. But here are the quarterbacks, okay? Trevor Lawrence to Jacksonville at one, Zach Wilson to the Jets at two, Justin Fields to Carolina at three, 
Trey Lance to Atlanta at four, Mac Jones to San Francisco at nine. Four of the top four picks, five of the top nine picks are quarterbacks. I mean, that is something else. And what's interesting is this, and this is really why I'm bringing this up. The mocks are evolving because the initial mocks from McShay and Kuyper weren't quite like this. In fact, McShay's initial mock had Washington taking Trey Lance, the North Dakota State quarterback, at number 19. McShay initially, that first mock draft he put out on January 7th, had Lance falling all the way to Washington at 19. Now, he also, McShay did have four other quarterbacks going in the first round in that draft, but he had, say, Fields going at number 15 to New England, had Mac Jones going at number 21 to Indianapolis. So, you know, it was a more traditional first-round distribution of quarterbacks. I mean, definitely five in the first round is a lot, but like I said, this is perceived to be a good quarterback draft class. And, you know, five quarterbacks going over the first 21 picks isn't, you know, that insane, obviously. But it's really ramped up in recent weeks. That second McShay mock that came out in February, four quarterbacks in the top four, five quarterbacks in the top 12. And now the one that comes out on Thursday night, four quarterbacks in the top four, five quarterbacks in the top nine. You know, so it's increasing each mock. It's very interesting to track these things. And like I said, I know this isn't necessarily for everyone, but I'm paying attention to these because the mock drafts, you got to understand, like guys like McShay and Kuyper, they're not reporters, but they do talk to people and they do have a sense of what teams are thinking. And yeah, there's a lot of misinformation in draft season. That is true. But these guys are well connected to where I think it's not just like, you know, they're closing their eyes and throwing darts at a board and that's how they're coming up with which quarterback goes where. Like, no, they're, they got some intel. Okay. They got, they got, uh, they got sauces as, uh, as we say. And so I think it's notable that this keeps increasing where now it's like, I mean, the top five is just loaded with quarterbacks being selected. The top 10 is got five quarterbacks. Uh, over those first nine picks. I mean, that really would be something incredible versus just how the draft has been done for years. But clearly, this is the direction the NFL has been going in for a while, right? It's an offensive league, a pass-happy league. It's a league where quarterback matters so much more than anything else. And so as we continue to have the Washington football team quarterback conversation, and you hear me continue to bring up the wild card in all this, which is what Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney and Scott Turner think about the quarterback draft class, you know, at the end of the day, it may not matter what those guys end up thinking, because if five guys go in the top nine, well, realistically, what are you going to do? I mean, you're not going to be trading up from number 19 overall into the top five, probably not the top 10, right? I mean, you know, that's going to be a sizable haul. You're going to have to give up to make a giant leap like that. The hope with drafting a quarterback, assuming Washington really liked quarterbacks in this draft beyond, say, Lawrence and Wilson was that one or more of these projected first rounders ended up falling. You know, so say a Justin Fields fell to you at 19 or a Trey Lance fell to you at 19, or maybe they didn't fall all the way to 19, but they fell to say, you know, that 15, 16 range and you can make a reasonable trade up, you know, two or three spots, that kind of a thing. That's what I've been thinking with this whole quarterback conversation we've been having for months. But man, the trend continues to be undeniable quarterbacks are going to be flying off the board, at least as McShay and Kuyper see it. And we know these mocks can end up looking very foolish. So we got to keep that in mind as well. But if the mocks are based on accurate intel, on truthful intel, 
This is not trending in a good direction for Washington when it comes to potentially taking a quarterback in the first round. And now to our special guest. All right, very pleased right now to welcome the Al Galdi podcast, one of my favorite people to talk Washington football team with, the host of the Washington Football Talk podcast, co-host of B. Mitch and Finley on 106.7 The Fan, Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington. J.P., how you doing, man? Goldie, I'm doing well, and I'm happy to see all the success with the podcast, man. I, I mean, I texted you when you were going to have a podcast up every morning at 5 a.m., dude. You are, you are, you are grinding hard, bro. <laughs> we're doing what we can here. And I have to sort of get back at you here because you've joined the dark side in joining the world of sports talk radio, and you guys are doing a great job. But how's it going for you? It's going great, man. I, I'm really enjoying it. You know, like you, like I've known B. Mitch for a while, and uh, it's really fun just talking to him on the radio all the time. And it's going to get crazy for me come football season because um, I'm not letting up at all on kind of the beat reporter side of this. But honestly, with I, I think we're looking at another like Zoom kind of COVID off season and stuff. So yeah. The job has changed, and I don't know how much it'll ever go all the way back to what it was. So it's, uh, I don't know. So far, it's been awesome, man. I'm really, really enjoying it. That's interesting, though, what you say. So you think, I mean, by the time we get to September, obviously the hope is that we're out or nearly out of the pandemic, and, you know, most people are vaccinated. But you think that the way you guys get to cover the football team might not be that much different from, say, 2020? I, I've been arguing with the guys on my podcast for a little while. I don't know that I'll ever – I think after games, reporters will be back in locker rooms just because there's too much stuff going on. But, like, the way we used to just kind of hang out in the locker room every day after practice, I don't know that that's ever coming back. Wow. I don't know. Because to me, it's something that is easy for p- players and management to agree on. Like, oh – you don't want them in there? Sure. That's fine. And, and I know that, listen, I'm like, I'm a member of Pro Football Writers of America. I, they, those guys, it's incredible leadership. Um, guys and women and, and they're going to fight like hell. I just, when the NFL sees things work, like the NFL understands how much the media pushes its product and makes it, you know, year round consumption. So, but if that's able to happen without having us in the locker room, I'm just not sure they're going to bring it back. Now, I think I do think like the interviews with Ron, with the coaching staff, will be in person. But I can see it all being kind of like outdoors or like even like a little pavilion or something. And I think they'll bring like specific players to meet with us in person. But I don't know, man. I just think the days of – I mean, really, like the best way to, to learn a beat job is just the hours and hours spent kind of just grinding and, and sitting around at times and just like the guys, the, the athletes, the players get to know you and know that like they know who's there every day. They know who's there only when there's big news, whether it's bad or good, and you can develop trust and a rapport and relationships and I just think a lot of that is going to look really, really different going forward. That's really interesting. I had not considered that, but a lot of what you're saying there 
Makes sense. So in the meantime, we have the offseason to conduct and the legal tampering period begins March 15th. The new league year gets going March 17th. We know Washington is going to have a lot of cap room. Uh, Ron Rivera has a much better understanding now of what he does and doesn't have. Has his front office in place. Do you expect Washington to spend big in free agency? Well, it's a tricky question because I expect them to make big swings. I don't know that they'll hit, but I think they're going to try to be aggressive. And I, I, I mean, they kind of did the same last off season. They tried to go get Amari Cooper. They didn't get him, but they they put the cash on the table. Um, and I think I think it'll be at the receiver spot. They're going to try to get an answer um, to line up opposite Terry McLaurin and. I think I think they'll be a um, – I can't remember who we had on the radio the other day, but he said to expect a calculated and aggressive approach from Washington, and I think that sounds right. I mentioned the new front office. We know that Ron Rivera is ultimately in charge of football operations in the coach-centric approach, but when it comes to Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney, is one guy above the other, or are they in fact true equals? I think they're equals – and I think they're kind of running different things, honestly. And, not, and, and I think it's weird. I wonder if it's because, I mean, even you and I are sports guys, but we were born and raised in D.C. where everything is political and everything's a power struggle. And then we deal with 20 years of Vinny and Bruce where everything's a power struggle. I don't know that that is kind of the center of this argument right now. Like, I don't know that those dudes are that concerned about it like you and I are. But I also think... Mayhew is going to run free agency and Herney is going to run the draft. And so I think there's kind of like a natural, not breaking point, but like a natural separation a little bit. And obviously both is going to have input on the other. But if you go back and listen to what, you know, all those guys said since that opening presser and, and I talked to Ron, maybe that was on the podcast or, you know, actually I think it was on the radio show. And Ron said, he's like, you know, Martin's great at um, the professional scouting pre-agency side, and Marty is a road scout. Like, Marty wants to be on the road looking at college prospects, and and that's we're going to let these guys play to their strengths. So that's kind of what I'm expecting. I I wouldn't suggest at all that one guy won't be included in both sides, because I think they will be, but I, I think it'll kind of break down that way. When it comes to quarterback, which, of course, we've all been talking about for months, to me, the biggest wild card in terms of who Washington may get is what Washington thinks about the quarterbacks in the draft. Have you heard anything on whether Ron and his guys like the quarterbacks in this draft class? I mean, I'm sure they like Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. Right. Um, No, honestly, I haven't heard. So it's tough because, like, if I say, yeah, I've heard they like Kyle Trask for hypothetically, that'll become like a thing. But there's a big difference in liking a player and trying to select them and moving them higher on a draft board or, you know what I mean? Like it's all, yeah. it's all relative. Like I'm sure they like some of these QBs relative to the price you have to pay for them. And I don't know who they like as it pertains to the 19th pick. Um, now, both, 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 I don't know who will do it. My guess is it'll be Ron, but I do expect a presser 
probably next week. Um, generally, now under Bruce, they didn't do this because why do anything the rest of the league does? But normally, coaches and GMs talk at the combine, and the league is encouraging its teams to do that kind of normal combine presser via Zoom this year. And I would expect that next week to happen. Maybe maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe it's um, maybe they're waiting until the first week of free agency if they expect to be active to have a big presser then when you introduce a new player or, or something else. But I, I'd expect to hear from these guys, and then they have to talk before the draft. That's like a mandated one. So I think I think we'll have some public on the record comments, maybe even twice, if not three times before late April, where we'll get a better idea. Yeah, I mean, do you think the draft is viable with that number 19 overall pick? Like, I mean, we keep hearing about veteran quarterbacks, right? We hear about Marcus Mariota and Sam Darnold and Matthew Stafford and, you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick and people like that. And it's like, okay, beyond Lawrence and Wilson, I mean, potentially Justin Fields, Kyle Trask, who you mentioned, uh, Mac Jones, Trey Lance, like, there are possibilities of guys falling to 19 or falling, say, to 15 and you trade up. It, it just doesn't seem to be a lot of feeling that Washington would do that. But, I mean, is that plausible in your opinion? Definitely. If a QB they like is at 19, I think they'd take it. Yeah, sure. okay. Um, and I think that could be independent of what happens in free agency or trade. Like, we know that they made the big swing for Stafford, didn't get him. I don't expect. I don't expect them to look at a Deshaun Watson thing as, as a realistic trade. I just don't think they're willing to pay that price at all. Um, Russell Wilson, real or not, has provided his list of teams he'll play for. Washington's not on there, so that kind of takes care of that. Could there be some domino effect if? Watson actually gets moved, or Russ actually gets moved, and then another veteran, you know, becomes available. Does Derek Carr become available? Maybe. Darnold, maybe. I, I think as we get closer to the draft, that's when those kind of moves might happen. And if I'm Houston, I'm waiting until draft day to, to make any sort of trade on Deshaun Watson. I think, I definitely think Watson's getting moved. I, I think, um, I think all parties know that's unfixable. And I think in some ways the Trevor Williams scenario from a few years back kind of shows a guideline of what not to do to make the guy sit out a year and you just you don't do anybody any good. Yeah. Um, so I think Watson's going to get moved. I just don't think Washington's in on that. And I don't think the trickle down effect will really get to them. Um, so certainly I think, I think a QB is in play. At 19, at 51, uh, it depends who they like and what's there. But I wouldn't rule a drafted quarterback out at all. Not saying it's going to happen, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. So when it comes to the realistically available veteran quarterbacks to Washington this offseason via trade and free agency, you know, Sam Darnold, Marcus Mariota, Ryan Fitzpatrick, etc. I mean, honestly, I am not moved by any of these people. Uh, you know, if Ron likes them, great, but I don't look at them and say to myself, like, oh, wow, that guy would fit in perfectly. Are, are you moved by any of these guys? I am not moved, Al. That is a good way of phrasing it. And, and I feel like 
feel like I'm swimming upstream on Darnold. I know a lot of people are into Darnold. I am not. I, uh, I value accuracy over all things in quarterbacks and I don't see it with him. And, and I know that Josh Allen made a big jump in his accuracy this past season and it's possible, but I, I don't know, man. I've talked to enough people from New York that just are just what are, whatever the opposite of wow it is, are just struck <laughs> by the bad decision making at times. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, that, that is not it for me. Now, maybe if you pay a really low cost, I just don't think the cost will end up being that low. Um, so to me, <laughs> I mean, if it's, if it, it, it's not up to me, but if it was, I think I would be, I, I'm one of the few people that's at least intrigued by Heineke. I want to at least see what happens there. I, I think there's real injury concerns and there are legitimate flash in the pan concerns, but watching him play and not just like kind of the dynamic run we all remember against the Bucks, but when he got in, even against the Panthers game, he plays the position on like an intuitive level and the ball comes out fast. And, and I know there's physical limitations. He doesn't have a big arm, really small, but it, I'm intrigued at least. And, and I do think now if I was in charge, I'd make the play for Watson and, We'll figure the rest out later, but I'm not. So I don't think it's the worst idea for the organization to try to get as good as they can everywhere else and then try to address quarterback. You see what you can get this year and then, you know, keep keep pressing that button until you finally find your guy. I, I think because of the way the season finished and because of the, you know, the impressive fight against Tampa in the wild card game, I think some people might think organizationally they're a little closer to like really contending at a conference championship level than, than maybe I do. Um, and in turn, I, I don't think it's the worst idea to just keep building the whole roster because they got holes. I mean, this roster has significant problems. And I think um, folks kind of, because they went on a good run in the second half of the season against some bad team bad quarterbacks, it, it kind of got glossed over a bit, and I know the organization is really excited about where they're going, but it, 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 you know they might not be all the way there. So you would not say we're close, as Brucifer once said? I I would not. Okay. I, uh, I, very, I very much would not say that. Okay. You know, I'm glad, though, to hear you say what you said about Heineke, because I agree with you. I, I think this, like, outright dismissal of him as a potential QB1 is a little ridiculous. You know, we saw what he did against Tampa Bay. I mean, I know you can't sit here and say like there's complete certainty with the guy. It's such a tiny sample. There's a reason he was out of the league, but I think people need to be open-minded about him. Like give him a shot, let him compete and kind of see where that goes. When it comes to Heineke and also Kyle Allen, what do you think Ron thinks? Like, do you think he thinks that either guy could be the QB one, could be the solution for at least a little while at quarterback? Or do you think his expectations are more tempered? Uh, I think the expectations are tempered. I think they're willing to see and, and find out, but I think they're – listen, I mean, they, they tried to trade for Matt Stafford. If they can get – I think you said something there that's so interesting that, you know, there's always some level of, of uncertainty. And with Heineke, I think it's a significant level of uncertainty, right? I, I mean, I think it, at best you have 
a 15% chance of him becoming the guy, right? And, and that's kind of lottery ticket numbers. But outside of Rodgers, Wilson, Watson, Mahomes, who's giving you more than a – maybe Josh Allen? I don't know, but like – Two-thirds of the league is no better than a 50% chance of success. Right, uh, right. Dominant QB1 performance. So I think it, you, I'm, knowing you and your baseball background, I'm confident you've read Moneyball, right? Yes, sir. So the, the opening, I always think about this, the opening chapter, I suppose, is the description of Billy Bean and what he looked like on the baseball field as a player, and no wonder everybody flocked to him. Right, right. And it's, we're almost doing the opposite of that with Heineke. He's short. He's small. He went to ODU. It'll never work. And as Washington fans, now there's a vocal subset that are all in on Heineke, and I don't think that's the right place to be either. But a lot of people are just overly dismissive, and I think that's premature. Uh, I totally agree. I mean, one of the lessons of Moneyball is this guy, Scott Hatterberg at first base, who looks like a complete jabroni, and he ends up being quite good for Oakland. You know, just because, like, the phrase, in, the phrase in Moneyball was, don't get swayed by how the guy looks in a pair of jeans. Like, just because he looks the part, it doesn't mean anything. And I think that's a great point. I think that makes so much sense. Uh, with Kyle Allen, so I keep coming back to this, but to me, it, it may have been the most telling thing Ron said all year. The Wednesday before the Week 17 win at Philly to clinch the division, he gets asked, hey, Ron, would you be here if not for Alex Smith? And he says, yeah, if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy. What about Kyle Allen? It feels like we don't talk about him nearly enough. Do you think they think he could end up being the guy? I think they think the same thing on both guys. Honestly, I think they think both guys are probably a high-end backup. But I think... To me, it's hard with Kyle because they got a really good look at him in Carolina. And he was good, and then he was awful. And and I'm a Mike Rizzo guy. Look at the back of the baseball card. It probably tells you the real truth, right? Like, to me, when you're good and you're awful, you're probably mediocre. And I think that's who Kyle Allen is. He's got a tendency to turn the ball over. That, that makes me very, very nervous. Um, but I like his playmaking ability and, and certainly his kind of gumption and, and attitude. Um Heineke, it's more of an unknown, but the problem is it's unknown because he keeps getting hurt. So, like, you can't really count on that either. Yeah. Tory Smith did um, the pre- and post-game show with us a lot on NBC this this past season, and Tory played with these guys and likes Kyle but loves Heineke and said, you know, way back when, when everybody was healthy, Heineke was who Scott and Norv and Ron went to first. It wasn't Kyle Allen. It was when Heineke got hurt is when Kyle Allen got his shot. And, and, dude, I've gotten to know Alex a little bit over the years. He has an intangible quality that he wins football games. And I know that a lot of people want to be dismissive of that, but it's a real thing. Like, I've had players describe what it's like to have him in the huddle next to them, and I, I buy it. But I'm not entirely sure Ron is wrong about that they could have gone 7-9 and nine if Kyle Allen stayed healthy, too. Because I think about Alex's... I mean, Alex Smith, so Alex against the Niners gave him nothing. He was hurt, and then Dwayne came in. Dwayne gave him nothing against the Seahawks and the Panthers. And Alex gave him nothing against the Eagles in the final week of the year. Uh, the final week of the year, yeah. So, like, now Alex was great in the second half of that Steelers game. He was, I think that's the best he's ever played in Washington uniform at an important juncture. 
And and I don't take that away, but like if Kyle doesn't shatter his ankle and he's able to play out those remaining seven, eight games, I, I think it could have been comparable to Alex. And, and you can play the what if Alex didn't get hurt game, and I understand that, but I think the odds of Alex getting hurt going forward are just significantly higher. And he can say that the injury had nothing to do with the surgically repaired leg, but then you read the GQ article that his calf was completely rebuilt. So, like, it's hard for some of that stuff to add up. No doubt. That injury thing is still really interesting. They call it a right calf injury, and he talks about it like a bone contusion, which has, of course, nothing to do with the calf. And it's like, I mean, you're not supposed to lie about injuries. And they apparently, they, at the very least, they misled all of us with uh, what Alex was dealing with down the stretch. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think that was a real friction point between the organization and Alex. And, um, you know, I think there were probably some more friction points than we all know about over the course of the year. And I think especially, you know, when the, the team wanted to IR him and he was like, no, I want to play. What, what are you talking about? So um, Alex wants to play, man. And, and everybody's convinced he's going to Jacksonville to be the backup. Like, if the Bears offer, I think he wants to play. And uh, I've talked to coaches that are like, football players never want to hang it up, ever. Like, you see the rare Luke Kuechly or Andrew Luck, but by and large, these guys hang on to the absolute bitter end. I mean, look at Thomas Davis this past year with Washington. He, he, he didn't have it, but he just wanted to play. And, he, I mean, he was at the bottom of a roster. That guy's going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And and you see stories like that all the time. I, I just and, – and the way – what Alex fought back from and everything he accomplished, I don't think he's done by a long shot. One more for you, man. I really appreciate your time. Just to get away from the quarterback situation for a moment, the window within which NFL teams can tag players ends on March 9th, which is this Tuesday. What do you think happens with Brandon Sheriff? Um, I, it looks like they'll probably have to tag him, but I don't, I don't think that at all closes the window on getting a long-term deal done. Cause they have till, what is it? Middle, middle of July, yeah. middle of June to continue to work on a deal. Um, so I, I don't think they're going to let him hit free agency, but I, I, I do know from both sides that getting a deal, a long-term deal done is a priority. And I, I, I know that much now. Whether or not it happens could, could be something else, but um, I know that there are folks in the organization when they hear that you can't pay a guard that much, they bristle at that notion because they think what Sheriff does and at the level he does it at is is a little bit silly to just dismiss that as, oh, you can't pay a guard that much. Really? So they'd be okay with $18 million for him next year? I mean, who knows if it's 18 I guess that's the tag number, right? Well, it's a tw- he gets a 20% raise, the, that automatic increase, because it's back-to-back tags. Right. Yeah. But if you get a long-term deal done, maybe you don't have to go to 18. Right. No, I mean, typically right. those numbers start with the tag number. Typically those contracts start with the tag number. But Sheriff also wants to be here. And we've heard, I mean, how many times did Kirk say that when we all knew it was nonsense? I, I, I trust that Brandon Sheriff legitimately just wants to stay in Washington, have his whole career in one place. And, and I think that could matter in this discussion also. Yeah, I agree. No doubt. I, I hope very much they get that deal done. Uh, JP, it is always great talking to you, man. Thank you so much. All the best to you.
Al, congrats on the success of the pod, man. So you likely saw this on Thursday, the Pittsburgh Steelers announcing that they have signed quarterback Ben Roethlisberger to a new contract for the 2021 season. Ben had had one season, the 2021 season, left on his contract, but at a salary cap hit of $41.2 million. That's what we call a big matzo ball. And that was not a matzo ball that the Steelers were wanting to swallow. Uh, Steelers did not release terms of the new contract, but those terms reportedly reduced Ben's 2021 salary from $19 million to $14 million and saved the Steelers about $15 million in cap space via utilizing a signing bonus, minimum base salary, and voidable years. All kinds, all kinds of mechanisms that teams can use to restructure contracts. Steelers very clearly did that in this case. Said Steelers general manager and vice president Kevin Colbert in a statement, quote, we are excited. We were able to come to an agreement with Ben Roethlisberger on a new contract for him to return to the Steelers in 2021. We know that Ben can still play at a high level and do special things for this team. Our goal remains the same, to put together a roster that will compete for another championship. We are happy that Ben will be one of our leaders to help us accomplish that goal. And quote, Ben's going into his age 39 season. And as you likely know, he is coming off a very mixed 2020 season. Ben in the 2020 regular season averaged just 6.3 yards per pass attempt, lowest mark of his career in terms of seasons in which he played in more than two games. So in 2019, Ben played in just two games due to an elbow injury. He averages 5.7 yards per pass attempt that year. But Ben this past season, uh, beyond that 2019 season, had never averaged lower than 6.3 yards per pass attempt like he did in 2020. This is a Ben career, right, that started all the way back in 2004. Never had there been a lower yards per pass attempt in a true season for Ben than what he did in 2020. Also, if you look at Ben through the prism of ESPN's total QBR, Ben number 22 out of 33 qualified quarterbacks in total QBR for the 2020 regular season. Sandwiched between Mitchell Trubisky and Jared Goff. That's the company that Ben was in in 2020 when it comes to the number one stat for quarterback play. You were between Trubisky and Goff, Big Ben, in 2020. So that wasn't bad. But on the other hand, I mean, you look at like touchdown passes to interceptions. Ben had 33 touchdown passes versus 10 picks. I mean, we as Washington football team fans would take that in a heartbeat for whoever ends up being our quarterback in 2021. But look, if you watch the Steelers, if you follow Pittsburgh, you know the season did not trend well. And it was a total nosedive for the Steelers offense really as the season went on. And it was capped by what happened in the playoffs. An all-time season collapse was capped by the Steelers in that home loss to the Cleveland Browns in the wild card round. 48-37 was the final. The game was nuts. But that game, I mean, I'll never forget it. The Steelers at the end of the first quarter trailed 28-0. The Browns became the first team in NFL history with 28 points in the first quarter of an NFL playoff game and been through two interceptions in that first quarter, including on the Steelers' second offensive possession. He's scrambling. He ends up overthrowing the running back, Benny Snell, for the pick. And the Steelers, of course, in 2020, and what's also notable regarding Washington, right, is the fall of the Steelers started with a loss to Washington. That 23-17 Washington win at Pittsburgh on Monday evening football back on December 7th. 
From that point forward, the Steelers lost four of their last five regular season games, including a humiliating 27-17 loss at the Cincinnati Bengals on Monday Night Football in Week 15, and then had the clunker there in the postseason against the Brownies. So, you know, it was a mixed 2020. Ben got off to a very good start. But on the whole, I mean, the season went down the tubes as the season went on. Now, not all of this was on Ben. There were way too many drops by Steelers pass catchers. We certainly saw that in that Washington win at the Steelers. The Steelers had like no running game to speak of, like no interest in running the football. And, you know, you know me, I'm big on passing. I'm not one of these people who says you have to have balance in terms of run pass distribution, but you like to have a semblance of a running game. Like you'd like it to be to where when you do run the football, your running game is productive and that your running game is a threat to the opposing defense. And it's like with the Steelers, that just was not the case. Like Ben game in and game out, it felt like was having 50 pass attempts. They were having him get rid of the football quickly to preserve his health. And so you just had this passing game that just was like constipated for so much of the year. Again, 6.3 yards per pass attempt by the great big Ben. But regarding this contract restructuring, okay, I think what stands out to me as much as anything as a Washington fan is the way the Steelers kept talking about the situation. Did you pick up on this? Did you follow this at all? What jumped out to me so much over these last few weeks was the way the Steelers kept discussing Ben's situation, the upfront and blunt nature of it all. The Steelers president is Art Rooney II. He on January 28th said the following to reporters, quote, I don't want to go too far down that road because we have a lot of discussions internally and with Ben. Salary cap and Ben's contract are big factors in where we go. That's as much as I can say, end quote. That was interesting. I remember when Art Rooney II said those things. I was like, wow, not a lot of love (laughs) in those comments, you know? That's pretty terse. That's pretty stiff. That's pretty direct of, you know, we talk about these things a lot. We got to think about the cap. We got to think about Ben's contract. And that's all I got to say about that. Like, that's what Rooney said January 28th. About a month later, February 24th, a statement was put out by Art Rooney II. That statement included the following. Ben Roethlisberger and I met yesterday morning, and we had a productive meeting. We were able to discuss a lot of things that relate to where we are and where we want to go. Ben assured me that he is committed to coming back to help us win, and I told Ben that we would like to have him back to help us win a championship. We both understand that the next step is to work out Ben's contract situation. End quote. Again, bringing up the contract, bringing up the money. You don't see this very often in the NFL where management publicly says, yeah, we got to do something about that guy's contract. Yeah, that guy is overpaid or is about to be overpaid, and we don't want to be doing that. The Steelers kept talking this way, and sure enough, they get the contract done. And my point with this is the following. There was like a gangsta-like approach that the Steelers took with this Ben situation. I mean, think about it, right? Big Ben, future Hall of Famer, I think the greatest quarterback in Steelers history, I would put him ahead of Terry Bradshaw. And I know a lot of Steelers fans who agree with that. You know, Ben, we know, can be a little bit of a diva. You know, he's not been shy over the years about uh, showing you when he's hurt and kind of 
playing up injuries or at the very least letting you know that he is injured and that he is banged up. And, you know, there's a question about whether he'll be playing in the upcoming game. You know, there's an ego with Big Ben and he's been a great quarterback. But the Steelers are like, yeah, no, you, you got to do something about your contract, pal. OK, that's the way that it is. And I can't tell you how much I admire that. I can't tell you how much I feel like that is a staple for every good organization that you handle tough circumstances in a direct, effective, alpha way. And the Steelers did that here, 100%. And they did that here. Remember this too. You know, Pittsburgh has not done a great job when it comes to having quarterback depth over the years. You know, Pittsburgh has had a real problem. When Ben's gotten hurt, basically since Charlie Batts retired, the Steelers have had a hard time. When Ben goes down, the Steelers go bye-bye. You know, this happened in 2019 when Ben played in just the two games due to an elbow injury, whether it was Mason Rudolph or Duck Hodges or whoever, the Steelers season really fell off. And a really good Pittsburgh defense in 2019 ended up being wasted because the quarterback play in the offense wasn't nearly good enough. You know, the Steelers have tried Landry Jones. You know, they have Mason Rudolph. Of course, they signed our guy, our pal Dwayne Haskins, to a reserve future contract a few weeks back. But it's not like the Steelers have their next stud QB waiting in the wings. At least it doesn't feel that way, you know. This is not a Kansas City Chiefs situation where you got Patrick Mahomes behind Alex Smith. You got a lot of uncertainty behind Big Ben. And that's going to be really interesting. When Ben's time is done, when he retires, or when the Steelers finally say bye-bye to Ben, where do they go at quarterback? There's not an obvious next man up at that position for Pittsburgh. And yet still, Art Rooney II spoke publicly this way when it came to the Roethlisberger contract situation. And so with our team, the Washington football team, you know, it got me to thinking. And one of the things that I really liked about Ron Rivera in the year plus forum as Washington's head coach in the coach-centric approach is that he himself has taken a similar gangsta approach with players in tricky situations. You know, you think about what's happened with Alex Smith, right? And by the way, Alex still not officially released. Uh, as of us conversing right here early on this Friday morning. You know, we thought this would happen by like Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, today is Friday. Maybe it goes down today, but that's kind of interesting. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. I don't think anyone thinks otherwise, but uh, that is notable for now. Alex Smith is still on the Washington football team's roster. But yeah, I mean, that has been gangster-like the way Ron has dealt with the Alex situation. You know, going back to when Ron, the Wednesday before the Week 17 win to Philadelphia to clinch the division, was asked about, would you be here if not for Alex? You know, this was like the height of people being in love with Alex and what he had brought to the team and, you know, the record he had authored as a starter, 4-1 and one in the season up until that point. And Ron was like, yeah, I think we would be here if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy, you know, Ron after that week 17 win at the Eagles saying, yeah, I did think about benching Alex in the game. And now Ron on the doorstep, right, of releasing Alex Smith off him having authored the greatest comeback in sports history, right? AP comeback player of the year, five and one record in 2020. Bye-bye. Okay. You don't fit what we want to do. You're overpaid. We know we can do better at quarterback. We're going to be cutting you gangsta. And that's a hundred percent to me, the right approach. What about Trent Williams? Go back to the Trent Williams situation, okay? So the initial reporting, remember, of Ron having been hired as head coach was that Ron was going to fix the Trent mess. Ron wanted Trent back on the Washington football team for 2020. And then things kind of stalled and things kind of went silent. And I'll never forget the reporting that came out 
late February 2020, okay? So there are a lot of twists and turns in the whole Trent Williams saga, right? We're certainly not going to rehash all of them right now. But on February 27th, 2020, we had multiple reports saying that Trent had told Washington that he either wanted a new contract for them or to be traded, all right? I mean, the whole thing about, well, this is not really about money. No, it was about money, okay? It was about money. And on that day, Mike Garofolo and Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com reported something that I will never forget, and I, I will always remember when it comes to how Ron handled Trent, okay? Garofolo and Rappaport reported that Washington wasn't even interested in talking about an extension with Trent at that moment. Garofolo in a Twitter video regarding Washington doing an extension for Trent said, and I quote, at the very least, the impression we're getting is that that's pushed to the back burner, end quote. So Ron wanted Trent back. I don't think Ron had like no interest in Trent being back on the team, but Ron wanted Trent back under Ron's terms, i.e. under the contract that Trent had signed years ago, right, August of 2015, when Washington made Trent the highest paid offensive tackle in NFL history. And Ron knew correctly that Washington had paid Trent a ton over the years. Washington had given Trent two big money contracts. And Ron was not about to play Trent's reindeer games. Ron was not about to be held hostage by Trent and his contract demands. And so Ron went gangster. Ron said, hey, pal, I'd love to have your back under the terms of the contract you signed. If you're on board, great. But if you want a new contract, I ain't talking to you about that. I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not giving anyone with an existing contract a contract extension before I see any of you guys play, before I conduct a single practice with any of you guys. You know, for those of you who remember the show In Living Color on Fox back in the day, In in Living Color was like basically Fox's answer to Saturday Night Live, okay? There was a skit on In Living Color called Homie the Clown. And Homie the Clown had a great saying, Homie, don't play that. And that's what Ron would say to Trent. Trent, you want a new contract? You want another big money extension? You want a third mega contract from this organization since it drafted you? Homie, don't play that. And Trent uh, didn't get his way. Ron did not play that. And Ron handled the Trent situation, I thought, beautifully. And of course, Washington ended up trading Trent to San Francisco. Now, of course, you got pennies on the dollar back for Trent. But that's not Ron's fault. That goes back to Brucey and him butchering the whole Trent thing, just like Brucey butchered the whole Kirk Cousins thing. But that's another conversation for another time. But Ron went gangsta on Trent. Trent tried to hold up Ron, okay? Trent tried to jack up Ron for more money. And Ron said, no, dude, no, bro, I'm not doing that. How about Quentin Dunbar, right? Remember Quentin Dunbar, who pretty clearly was influenced by the Trent holdout, wanted to try to stick up Washington for more money last offseason, right? Remember the, the like Jekyll and Hyde nature of all that too, where like Quentin Dunbar, at first it was, I want to be traded. Then it was, well, no, I don't really want to be traded. Then it was like, no, I do want to be traded. Anyway, February 20th, 2020, we got a tweet from ESPN NFL reporter Josina Anderson saying that Dunbar, quote, and I love this, had reached out to the team to discuss a reasonable contract restructure, okay? So first of all, that is so obviously coming from either Dunbar or Dunbar's agent, right? Reached out to the team to discuss a reasonable contract restructure. Really, who uses that word reasonable, okay? That, that is so obviously coming from Dunbar or Dunbar's camp. But anyway, Josina tweets, Dunbar's reached out to the team to discuss a reasonable contract restructure, but the club 
declined the conversation. Again, homie, don't play that. Quinn Dunbar, remember, yes, off injured for Washington, but he had been Washington's best corner for multiple seasons. You know, there was an argument to be made of, hey, Dunbar's young. He's good. Yeah, he's had a hard time staying healthy, but he could be a real building block for this defense that Ron and Jack Del Rio are trying to construct. Dunbar wanted a new contract, and Ron said, no, I'm not talking to you about that. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your pro football focus grades are. Homie, don't play that. And the best part of the way Ron handled Dunbar was this. April 7th of last year, Zoom press conference, Ron uttered maybe the greatest line that Ron has uttered since he became Washington's head coach, okay? Regarding why Washington traded Dunbar, Ron said the following. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. (laughs) I cannot tell you how much I love that line from Ron. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Yes, point blank period. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Gangsta, direct, alpha, authority. That's the way you handle these things, okay? That's the way you have to be. If you're trying to establish law and order, as Ron has clearly tried to establish, right? Washington, a dysfunctional, toxic mess for years infighting, divided locker room, divided coaching staff, divided front office. All that garbage has got to stop. And there's a new sheriff in town and Quentin Dunbar wants to hold out for a new contract. And Ron says, I ain't doing that, bro. You're looking for something we ain't going to be giving you. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Exactly. Exactly. That to me is how you establish a winning culture. And there may well be no better example of a winning culture than what the Pittsburgh Steelers have had. And so with this Big Ben news on Thursday, it got me to thinking about the gangsta-like manner in which Ron already has handled multiple major situations regarding players and their contracts or their circumstances with the team. And that, to me, is exactly the way you gotta be. For those of you who watch Seinfeld, George Costanza taught us many years ago the significance of leaving on a high note. The Washington Wizards have exited the pre-All-Star break portion of their season on a high note. A win on Thursday night to go into the All-Star break with a victory that makes you feel good and I think really highlights the improvement for the Wizards over these last few weeks. Wiz get to 14-20, and 20, a 119-117 win over the Los Angeles Clippers at Capital One Arena. Here you have the Wiz coming off back-to-back losses. Sunday night, that 111-110 loss at the Boston Celtics, a game in which the Wizards overcame an 11-point third-quarter deficit, but also blew a five-point lead with 46.9 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Then came Tuesday night's 125-111 loss to the Memphis Grizzlies at Capital One Arena. And what was largely a dud of the game, Wizards never led in the second half. In fact, trailed by double digits for all but less than a minute in the second half. Wizards defense was terrible in that game. So you move to last night, you're facing the Clippers, one of the best teams in the Western Conference. Now look, the Clippers were without Paul George. That's not nothing, right? George did not play due to dizziness. So you do have to make mention of that, that uh, PG was not out there. However, the Wizards, I think, still can look at this as having been an impressive victory. The Wiz get to 11 and 7 since their tween. The Wiz get to 11 and 7 since their 3 and 12 start. The Wizards, how about this, are now 7 and 2 in games decided by three or fewer points this season. When it comes to games being close, 
the Wizards do some of their best work. They're pulling out the close game so far this year. That's not something we've been able to say about many recent Wizards teams. It was another game in which the Wizards overcame a double-digit point deficit. Wiz last night overcoming a 16-point second-quarter deficit. And in the fourth quarter, how about this, went on a 17-5 run to go from trailing by five at 101.96 to leading by seven at 113.106, although the lead did get trimmed to one. You know, it's never easy with the Wizards. It feels like they always got to overcome a double-digit deficit. You know, the game is like in their grasp, and then they can let it slip, but then they can get it back. And like I said, they are winning the close game so far this year. But it's never smooth. It's never like, you know, easy breezy kind of a win. There have been very few of those wins so far this season for our Wizards. But they are our Wizards. And we can embrace them now. We can get excited about them now because the season that looked like it was just a complete dumpster fire and the conversations that we were all really having of, man, do they just need to blow this thing up? Like, do they really truly need to just trade Bradley Beal and just hit the reset button? Uh, those conversations have been shelved. The Wizards are in it. Our Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Stephen A. So the Wiz on Thursday night, just nine turnovers to the Clippers, 19. That was a big reason for the win. You know, the Wiz in that loss to the Grizzlies at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night, 22 turnovers in that game to the Grizzlies, 11. So you took care of the basketball on Thursday night. Uh, did allow the Clippers to go 16 to 35 on threes. That obviously has been a real weakness for the Wizards this season, three-point defense. But again, the Wizards made the winning plays to pull out the victory. And how about what Russell Westbrook did to seal the deal in the game, okay? Uh, it was an odd night for Westbrook. He was awful on free throws, okay? He was. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. He's had a really bad season so far when it comes to this free throw shooting. Uh, he went to seven for 15 on free throws on Thursday night. Fourth quarter, Wizards win it 32-30, despite Westbrook going five for nine on free throws in that fourth quarter. The Clippers essentially started playing Hacker Russell and just purposely sending him to the line because his free throw shooting has become that bad. But also for Westbrook in that fourth quarter was him pumping in nine points, five rebounds, four assists versus one turnover, and it was a non-rebound. That was Westbrook's best play. Wizards are nursing a two-point lead at 119-117 with seven seconds left. Rui Hachimura misses the second of two free throw attempts. He'd made the first one. As the ball is in the air prior to going off the back of the iron, Westbrook comes charging in from behind the three-point line, gets in front of the seven-foot Croatian Ivica Zubats, and Westbrook, now he does fail to corral the basketball, but in failing to corral the basketball, ends up deflecting it to Bradley Beal. Beal gets the game-sealing offensive rebound, dribbles out the clock, and the Wizards come out with the two-point victory. The anticipation and determination by Westbrook on this play were tremendous. Again, he comes charging in from behind the three-point line as the ball is still in the air. Ball goes off the back of the iron. Westbrook, with his hustle, gets to the ball beyond the seven-foot Croatian, Evita Zubats. And yeah, Westbrook does fail to corral the ball for a rebound of his own. But, you know, sometimes it's like in trying to do something good, maybe you don't do that exact thing, but you do something that's good enough. And that's what Westbrook did. He ended up deflecting the ball to Beal, who gets that game-sealing offensive rebound. Just an outstanding job there 
by Russell Westbrook. And this is what we all felt like Westbrook was going to bring to the Wizards when they traded John Wall in a protected first round pick for Westbrook. The hustle, the determination, you know, the rebounding. I mean, Russell Westbrook, I think legitimately is the best rebounding point guard in NBA history. I cannot think of a better rebounding point guard in the history of the league. There is a tenacity, a ferocity to Westbrook when it comes to crashing the glass that you just don't see from, never mind many point guards, many players in the NBA period. And here's another thing too about Westbrook on Thursday night. Yeah, he was awful on free throws. Okay, 7 of 15 is not acceptable. But he was otherwise very efficient. 2 of 4 on threes, 7 of 15 on twos. You know, Wizards outscored the Clippers in the paint by 14, 48, 34. Westbrook was a big part of that. But 27 points, 11 assists, and how about this? One turnover. That's it. Russell Westbrook, who's been like a turnover machine for much of the season, 11 assists versus one turnover on Thursday night, finished with nine rebounds, and he finished with four steals. 27 points, 11 assists versus one turnover, nine rebounds, and four steals. Coinciding with this Wizards rise since the 3-12 and start, as much as anything, has been the improved play of Russell Westbrook. And it's odd, right? Because early in the year, he was piling up the triple doubles. But so many of them were those classic Westbrook inefficient triple doubles, where he wouldn't shoot the ball very well, where he would have a bunch of turnovers. He still does have his turnovers, but last night he didn't. One for the entire game, one turnover for Westbrook in 35 minutes, 40 seconds of playing time as a starter. Uh, I thought Westbrook was great, again, with the exception of the free throw shooting, yes. But uh, that moment toward the end of the game where he is able to deflect the ball to Beal for the game-clinching offensive rebound. Cannot say enough about that. Now, speaking of Beal, interesting night for him. He did not have a good shooting night. Just one of four on threes, just eight and 19 on twos. But I think one of the signs of a great score is even on a night on which you're not shooting the ball well, you're still able to do what you do, and that is score the basketball. And Beal did that. He did an excellent job of getting the line. 14 of 15 on free throws was Beal. He finished with 33 points, seven rebounds, three assists, versus one turnover and two steals. That's another thing. You know, Beal has not been uh, guiltless. Beal has not been some innocent little angel when it comes to turnovers this season. He's had a bunch, just one turnover for him last night. Beal and Westbrook each with just one turnover the entire game. But really nice job by Beal. Again, on a night on which he didn't have a shot going down, he still is able to give you 33 points. It's like a pitcher whose location is off or velocity is off, and yet he still, you know, allows one run in seven innings or something like that. Like, even when you don't have your best stuff, can you still get the job done? Bill did do that. He had eight points in the fourth quarter as well. I thought Hachimura had an interesting game on Thursday night. He did not finish with great stats, but he did a really nice job of defending Kawhi Leonard. All right. Now it's all relative with Kawhi. That is true. But Rui helped to hold Kawhi to just two of six on threes. And Kawhi finished with, I think, acceptable numbers if you're the Wizards when it comes to a talent like Kawhi Leonard. 22 points, five rebounds, three assists, versus four turnovers. You can live with that. You know, that game that the Wizards had a few weeks back against the Clippers, that loss that the Wizards had. Remember, they go three and one, the Wizards do out West. The lone loss was that 135-116 loss at the Clippers on February 23rd. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George scorched the Wizards on that night. No PG-13 last night, like we said, but, you know, Kawhi, I thought largely was held in check. Rui Hachimura, had a lot to do with that. You got some good minutes from Bo Wagner on Thursday night. Uh, he started, he, you know, continued to play really not that much. He played for 19 minutes, 23 seconds, but 
Two of five on threes, 12 points, three rebounds, three steals, had the best plus minus of the game at plus 26. Did just go one of five on his twos, but I thought Wagner had a pretty good game. Robin Lopez was again productive off the bench, 10 points, five and nine shooting, seven rebounds, including five offensive rebounds. Wizards had 17 second chance points to the Clippers six. Robin Lopez had a lot to do with that. Also had three assists versus two turnovers. Howell Neto off the bench was good. 11 points, 5 of 10 shooting. Uh, Davies Bertans was again underwhelming. Did hit some threes in the second half, but finished 2 of 5 on threes. 11 points, 4 boards off the bench. But the Wizards have been so much better over these last few weeks. Like, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. If you're like me, lifelong bullet slash Wizards fan, we have seen so many of these lost seasons over the years. And, you know, so many times it's like you have expectations for the Wizards and then the season just ends up being a giant bust. And this season had that written all over it at 3-12. and 12. And yet here we are now. The Wizards have gotten themselves back to a point where, look, the overall record is still not sparkling, okay? I mean, 14-20. and 20. But 11-7 and seven since the 3-12 and 12 start. You're two games out of eighth in the East. You're just four games out of fourth in the East. The Wizards are a mere four games behind the 19-17 and 17 Boston Celtics for fourth in the Eastern Conference. After Philadelphia, Brooklyn, and Milwaukee, there is such a drastic drop-off in the Eastern Conference this season. Beyond the Sixers, the Nets, and the Bucks, there is wide-open real estate in terms of making a charge, making the postseason, and maybe even finishing as like a top four seed. I mean, look, there's a, there are many teams between the Wizards and the Celtics, so it's not like the Wizards are the only team within striking distance, but it's incredible when you look at the Eastern Conference. After those top three teams, there's just so much parity because, once again, the East is so much worse than the Western Conference. But great job by the Wizards in turning this season around. Got to keep it going. You haven't accomplished anything yet, obviously. But at least there's a season to talk about. You know, the Wizards are having themselves a season. And it did not feel that that was going to be the case as recently as just a few weeks ago. So now comes the All-Star break for the Wizards. Uh, they're not going to play again until Wednesday night, March 10th at the Memphis Grizzlies. The All-Star game, this kind of snuck up on people, I feel like, is Sunday night in Atlanta, all right? They're doing everything on Sunday. So like the dunk contest is going to be at the half. The skills competitions are going to be before the game. There was the All-Star game draft on Thursday night. It is Team LeBron versus Team Durant. Uh, Beal was taken by Team Durant with the eighth uh, of the nine first-round picks. First-round picks all had to be All-Star starters. Beal is an All-Star starter. And good for him. Uh, it's great to see something like that. Uh, but he goes eighth out of the nine first round picks. The Wizards have life. The Wizards have a pulse. And they go into the All-Star break with a nice win over the Clippers. The damn Washington Wizards. All right, so let's get to the Nationals. And of course, the Nats for years have been built on their starting pitching, right? That's been a staple of the Mike Rizzo era. Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Jordan Zimmerman, Gio Gonzalez when he was good, Doug Fister. When he was good, I mean, a lot of different guys have been leaned on over the years. The names may have changed at least somewhat, but since the Nats truly got good in 2012, it's been the starting pitching. The starting pitching has been the foundation upon which the Nats have been able to do as they've done in making the five playoff appearances and, of course, winning the World Series in 2019. But one of the more sneaky negative developments, especially in recent years, has been the lack of development of starting pitchers for the Nationals. The truth is this. The Nats have not drafted and developed a starting pitcher who has blossomed for them at the major league level since Steven Strasburg. That may surprise you, but it is the truth. And the Nats in recent years 
just have not churned out anywhere close to enough in terms of quality arms. It's become a real issue. Now, some of this has had to do with trading away pitchers, right? The famous Adam Eaton trade, December 2016, where you traded away three pitching prospects, Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, and Dane Dunning. You know, that certainly stands out. You traded away a guy who became a very highly touted prospect for the Oakland Athletics, Jesus Lizardo, in the July 2017 trade that got to Sean Doolittle and Ryan Madsen. But at some point, it has to stop being that you have to pay for your arms, and it has to start being that you are developing your arms. The Nationals have in their rotation, right, 300-plus million-dollar pitchers in Scherzer, Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin. And so with all of that as a backdrop, it was notable on Thursday that the Nats in their 8-4 Grapefruit League loss to the New York Mets threw not one, but two of their highly touted arms in the system. In fact, the last two first-round picks for the Nationals were on display in this game on Thursday. Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge. Cavalli is who the Nats took with the number 22 overall pick in the 2020 MLB draft. Kid out of Oklahoma. He tossed a scoreless and hitless second inning. Had a couple of strikeouts uh, in that inning. And the two strikeouts came after Cavalli was having some issues. Gave up a leadoff walk to James McCann. Had a one-out throwing error on a comebacker. Then came into the game Jackson Rutledge, who the Nats took with the number 17 overall pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of uh, San Jacinto College, a public community college in Texas. And Rutledge tossed a scoreless third inning that included strikeouts of both Jeff McNeil and Dominic Smith. Uh, Rutledge, by the way, also picked off Brandon Nimmo at first base for the first out of having given up a uh, leadoff single to him. So, you know, tiny sample size outings for these guys, clearly. But I think it's a good way of getting into the conversation of how important it is that both Cavalli and Rutledge end up panning out. Uh, Cavalli end up panning out. We're going into the final season of the Max Scherzer 70-year $210 million deal. Obviously, you have Steven Strasburg under contract for years to come, but he is in his 30s and he is coming off another injury-ruined season. You like Patrick Corbin, but he's coming off a bad year. And, you know, Corbin is a guy... Ideally, he's not your ace, okay? He's like a good number two or number three pitcher. You know, he's a really good number three pitcher. But you don't want it to be that, like, Patrick Corbin is the guy you have to lean on. You want it to be that Corbin slots in nicely into that number two, number three type role. The Nats really do need Cavalli and Rutledge to pan out and pan out for the Nats. You know, it can't be like they end up trading one or both to get bullpen help, which, by the way, I don't think the Nats would end up doing. Each guy is a very enticing prospect. Cavalli listed as being 6'4", possesses mid-90s velocity prior to the cancellation of the rest of the 2020 college baseball season, had 37 strikeouts versus five walks over 23 and two-thirds innings for Oklahoma. The concern with Cavalli is his injury history. He's dealt with back problems and a stress reaction in his throwing arm. So yeah, I mean, that does worry you, but the stuff is there. The size is there to whatever extent size does matter for a pitcher. And it can, but there have been many, you know, smaller pitchers who've done quite well over the years, right? See Pedro Martinez. Speaking of size though, Rutledge is a behemoth listed as being 6'8", and he is a flamethrower. Per MLB Pipeline scouting report, when Rutledge was drafted, fastball velocity that hovered from 94 to 97 miles per hour could touch 99 miles per hour. We know that Mike Rizzo loves the power arm. A power arm is certainly possessed 
by Jackson Rutledge. Now, look, each guy likely is a ways away from being a starting pitcher for the Nats at the major league level. But the way it does often work with these highly touted prospects is they end up playing for you at the major league level sooner than you think. You know, that happened with Bryce Harper, happened with Anthony Rendon. I mean, it's just kind of the trend in major league baseball. So it wouldn't be a shocker if, say, each guy is up sooner rather than later. But, you know, I, like, I, I'm certainly not counting on other guy to be pitching in 2021. Remember, there was no minor league season in 2020. So you got to keep that in mind when it comes to the developments of Cavalli and Rutledge and really every other prospect in Major League Baseball. But you look at the Nats' recent first-round picks, and you're just not getting out of these guys, for the Nats certainly, what you would want. So the Nats, they had that incredible run, 2009 through 2011. Steven Strasburg taken number one overall in 2009. Drew Storen taken number 10 overall. Uh, Bryce Harper taken number one overall in 2010. Anthony Rendon taken number six overall in 2011. Now, also in that draft was the Nats taking Alex Meyer, a pitcher out of Kentucky at number 23. But the Nats ended up trading Meyer to the Minnesota Twins for Denard Spann. And Spann ended up actually being pretty productive. So in that three-year stretch, 09 through 11, you got Strasburg, Storen, Harper, and Rendon. And you know, look, Storen was a reliever. It's debatable like whether you should ever spend a top 10 pick on a reliever as the Nats did in that draft, especially a draft that included Mike Trout, who ended up going in the 20s. But Storen did have some good years for the Nats. It didn't end well, but they did get production out of him. And certainly Strasburg hit, Harper hit, Rendon hit. But since then, 2012, Nats took Lucas Giolito, obviously included him in the trade for Adam Eaton. You know, Adam Eaton was a good national, that is true, but Giolito has blossomed for the White Sox in recent years. 2014, the Nats took Eric Fetty, who the Nats are still waiting on to pan out. 2016, the Nats took Carter Keboom in the first round, waiting on him to deliver. We'll see what happens this year. 2017, the Nats took Seth Romero out of Houston, and the pick has largely been a flop. Uh, Seth Romero has dealt with disciplinary issues. He underwent Tommy John surgery in August 2018. 2018, Nats took pitcher Mason Denneberg uh, in the first round. He underwent shoulder surgery in 2019. And now these last two picks, Jackson Rutledge in 2019, Cade Cavalli in 2020. So we, of course, will see. Time will tell as the saying goes. But the Nats need these guys to pan out, okay? There's a saying in baseball, you grow the arms, you buy the bats. Pitching is expensive. Pitching is prone to injury. You don't want to be in the habit of always having to give out hundred plus million dollar contracts to fortify your rotation. You really do want to be able to grow your arms. And the Nats did that well for a while there, right? With Strasburg, with Jordan Zimmerman. Nats have gotten away from that. Not because they're not trying to develop arms, but things just haven't worked out in recent years. And that's, like I said, have had to trade away some of these guys for help elsewhere. That time really to me has ended. You've got to really focus. You've got to harness your energies here on getting the Cavallis and the Rutledges and the Denenbergs to pan out because that next wave of national success is dependent on the starting pitching becoming really good again. Starting pitching was bad last year. You hope it's good this season. I think it could be, but it's also older and, you know, Scherzer could be bye-bye after this season. You got to be able to grow your arms. And hopefully what we saw on Thursday was a sign of what we will be seeing from Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge. Also on Thursday, by the way, Ryan Zimmerman homering for a second time in as many games for him this exhibition season. So that was good to see. There was a negative item for the Nationals on Thursday. It turns out that Tanner Rainey has been experiencing soreness in his collarbone area, according to manager Dave Martinez. So uh, Rainey being sidelined here 
for a bit. Tanner Rainey is someone who a lot of people feel like could have a really big 2021. Tanner Rainey might end up being the best reliever for the Nats this year. We'll see. I mean, the Nats made that shrewd signing of Brad Hand, who's been a very dependable reliever for years. And that's not something you often say dependable reliever. That's not a phrase you hear a lot because most relievers aren't dependable. They're fickle. They're year to year. Uh, so hand figures to be good and hopefully is good. But Rainey is, you know, Rainey, like if, if Tanner Rainey ends up being your ace reliever or your best reliever or your closer, if you want to get it caught up in that, uh, nobody should be shot. Tanner Rainey in 2020 had an ERA at 266 over 20 and a third innings and a strikeouts per nine innings of 14.2, which is excellent. Even in this strikeout laden era in which we reside, 14.2 strikeouts per innings is awesome. You know, power arm. Again, Rizzo loves him. Uh, that's the trend in baseball right now. Rainey possesses that. So hopefully he gets well soon. All right. So enjoy your sports weekend. Uh, college hoops, regular season finales for Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia. Terrapins are home to Penn State Sunday night at seven. The Hoyas are at UConn Saturday at noon. Big spot for the Hoyas as they try to make this charge here for the NCAA tournament. It's still an uphill climb, but it's not an impossibility with how much better Georgetown has been lately. And Virginia is at Louisville Saturday afternoon at four. Virginia Tech, by the way, no games. Last two games canceled uh, due to a quarantining and contact tracing review within the Hokies program. This is now seven postponements, now cancellations for the Hokies this season uh, due to COVID-19 in some form or fashion. For the Capitals, you got a couple of games this weekend at the Boston Bruins, another big game Friday night at seven at the Philadelphia Flyers Sunday night at seven. We mentioned the Wizards. All-star break has begun. All-star game is Sunday evening. I mean, look, honestly, I'm not that excited for it, but uh, Bradley Beal going to be in there as a starter, so I'm happy for Beal. And with baseball, Nationals have two exhibition games this weekend. St. Louis Cardinals Friday evening, 6.05. Max Scherzer is expected to be the starter for the first time this exhibition season, and the Nats play the Miami Marlins Saturday afternoon at 105. No Nats game on Sunday. Orioles have an exhibition game each of uh, the next three days here, Friday to Sunday. So that will do it for you and for me for now. Big next few weeks coming up with the NFL offseason. The window within which you can tag players ends on Tuesday. So we're going to have the Brandon Sheriff news next week. We are still anticipating, of course, the Alex Smith news, Washington releasing him. The expectation is that there's going to be a whole lot of bloodshed in the NFL over the next week or so in terms of cap cuts and veterans being discarded and people thrust into free agency. So all kinds of options potentially are about to open up for Washington. And then, of course, we are off and running the week after that. March 15th, the legal tampering period gets going. March 17th, the start of the new league year, i.e. free agency and the trading period. So you are on board with this podcast at a very good time. Thank you for the continued support. Keep the feedback coming at Al Galdi on Twitter, uh, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com via email. Have a great rest of your Friday. I'll talk to you on Monday. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.